Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner, and welcome to the Mark Steiner Show here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And welcome to Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, farming, energy, and our environment here on the Mark Steiner Show. Uh, we are joined here by Mitch Jones, who is Senior Policy Advocate at Food and Water Watch, and Drew Cobbs, who's Executive Director of the Maryland Petroleum Council. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to have you both with us. Thanks, Mark. Good morning. And this is part of our series leading up to the Annapolis Summit. We want to welcome you to that series uh, leading up to the summit, uh, which is our annual conversation with the governor, the Speaker of the House, and the President of the Senate that takes place on January the 13th, the opening day of the Annapolis legislative session. And each week we bring you a different series of conversations on this program uh, about an issue that's going to be front and center uh, in Annapolis uh, with our partners, uh, The Daily Record, which we will link to their article they published on Monday on this issue we're talking about today, which is fracking. Uh, and the article written in the Daily Record uh, was fracking ban to headline environmental issues in the 2017 Maryland legislative session and first in a series by Brian Sears and now here on the Mark Steiner show. So let's talk about this for a moment. So the history here is that we have had a moratorium on fracking now for four years. Am I right about that number? Right about five. Five, okay. It's 11, I believe, Mark. Okay, good. Thanks. I appreciate you straightening me out, Drew. <laughs> it's five years. So, and the ban, the, the, the attempt to ban it has failed. The attempt to implement uh, the business of fracking has not opened up in Maryland. So now we're at the end of the moratorium, if I'm correct. In October. In October. Yeah. And so the legislature has to debate what the next steps are. So what will the next steps be? I mean, Bobby Zirkin, who is a leading figure in Annapolis around the issue of fracking and banning fracking wants to push banning, but it seems it's going to have a very hard way to go politically uh, with the other committee under uh, – with the committee under Senator Conway. So t- tell me where we are. What, so wh- let me go for, to you first, Drew, and, and talk a bit about um, wh- what the history has been and where you think this is going. Oh, sure, Mark. Um, you know, it's said it's been five-plus years that this has been looked at and studied by the state of Maryland. And uh, about a year and a half, two years, almost two years ago, a bill was passed that said, uh, hold on, let's, let's look at this some more. We want you to promulgate regulations uh, to address this issue and that they can't take effect, nor could you issue a permit until October 1 of 2017. Um, and it, during that time, uh, Governor um, O'Malley appointed a commission to study this. And, and they spent three and a half years looking at this. Uh, had I think about three dozen meetings, public meetings, uh, both out. In, most of them were out in Western Maryland, but some other place. And then the departments and the O'Malley administration came to the conclusion that it was their judgment, provided all the best practices are followed, and the state is able to rigorously enforce compliance. The risk of Marcellus Shale development can be managed to an acceptable level, and that was the conclusion of the O'Malley administration. Uh, and then in 15, right as they were leaving office, they proposed some regulations to start with. And the ones that are now being proposed by the new administration are pretty similar, I'd, I'd say, to what was proposed at that time. And the position of those around Bobby Serkin and your group of Food and Water Watch is to ban it outright? That is correct. And why? Because we don't believe that fracking can be regulated to a point where um, it doesn't pose an inherent risk to the people who live near fracking wells or near the infrastructure that comes along with uh, an increase in drilling activity that fracking allows. What does that mean? So so we've watched localities around the the state, um, cities especially, uh, and townships in western Maryland wanting to ban fracking. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course, other parts of the industry really want it there because it's Part of where the f- people argue is the future of the American industry, in, in, American um, energy industry is going, and Maryland should be part of that. So, be more specific about what do you mean? Why it should be banned? And I want to hear Drew's response. Well, as I said, you know, Drew indicated that the O'Malley administration concluded that um, if you followed best manage- certain best management practices, and if the regulations were rigorously enforced, which is a key term, rigorously, that it could be managed with acceptable risk. We don't believe that the risks of uh, contamination to drinking water to folks uh, 
the aquifers that people sink their drinking water wells in is an acceptable risk. We don't believe that the air pollution that comes along with uh, drilling or with the compressor stations or with any of the uh, other infrastructure that's required for the gas industry when fracking comes to town pose an acceptable risk. There has been a, a, a real almost algorithmic increase in the amount of uh, peer-reviewed health studies since the O'Malley administration reached that conclusion, which we believe demonstrates conclusively that fracking can, is poses inherent risk and that no regulations can make them safe. And we, on top of that, believe that there is no way that MDE, which couldn't even get the regulations out on time, would be able to rigorously enforce the inadequate regulations that they've proposed. So just one example, when the best management practices that the O'Malley uh, administration were suggesting were, were put in place, first, they didn't actually look at public health. They looked at public safety. That's a key difference. Second, they only looked at two peer-reviewed studies that had anything to do with public health. There are currently over 900 peer-reviewed published studies looking at the effects of hydraulic fracturing. Roughly 200 of those were published just in the past year. The best management practices on, upon which the O'Malley regulations, and as Drew pointed out, the Hogan administrations are not very different, are based, were written well before most of the research that shows the uh, inherent dangers of fracking were actually published. Drew? Well, a number of points. I'll Please start do. first, and I know Mitch's uh, biggest concern is about water. And I, I want to you know, relate to what EPA, the Environmental Protection <laughs> Administration, uh, came they had a study, a uh, multi-year study, meant millions of dollars on this study. And their draft report came to the conclusion hydraulic fracturing activities have not led to widespread systematic impacts to drinking water resources. The number of identified cases where drinking water resources were impacted are small relative to the number of hydraulically fractured wells. Now, this is from the Obama administration, not exactly a friend of the industry that came to that. And the other thing I'll say, state, there's another study, comprehensive study by you know a non-biased group, which includes the state of California. And they came to a very similar conclusion that EPA did relative to water and the concerns along those lines. You know, there, yes, are there some risk involved? Yes. But it is said when the O'Malley administration studied this, especially for water stuff, it was low risk uh, of any possibilities or impacts, um, you know, relative to moving forward with with this activity. So well, let's talk about this for a minute. This, this is where it gets really confusing, I think, for most people. I mean, and, we, you know, there's the politics of what's happening in Annapolis where um, – the uh, 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 let's say a ban on fracking may get some traction in the House committee, uh, though it may not get much traction in the Senate. And that's a political, political debate. We, I can ask you both your views on what the political reality is there before we have to break. But let's talk about what the, the, the issues are around what we know and don't know about the science here and about the effect of fracking. Um, but before I do that, let me ask you this quick question, Drew. And, and both of you can comment on this very quickly. So the, I understand there is dry fracking and wet fracking. Right. Well, there's dry and, gas and wet gas. I think is what you're referring to. Correct. Uh, dry gas is just the natural gas and methane itself on that, and that's probably what exists in Maryland. As you go further west into West Virginia and up the western Pennsylvania and into Ohio, they have what's called wet gas, which has some of the natural gas liquids. And eventually, the same process could lead you, like out in North Dakota and Texas, other places where you can get you know crude oil and stuff. So it just depends on what the geology is and what, what's available in a given area. But most likely, western Maryland, far western Maryland, probably just has dry gas. And very quickly, is that economically, economically viable from your perspective? Well, the market right now for natural gas, because of this abundant supply of it, it is relatively suppressed. So, you know, it's not as valuable now as maybe it was a number of years ago, nor is it as valuable as crude oil or the liquids, the wet gas. You know, so if you're going to invest in this, a business would be, you know, obviously you're looking for you know, your best return on that investment. So let's let's go to, to what you just mentioned here, Mama Drew, and let me turn to Mitch here. Then, mm -hmm. and Drew, please, I want you to jump right back in. Is that uh, Drew mentioned the EPA report, 
The, yesterday on Marketplace yep. on National Park Radio, there was mm-hmm. a, a long story on this particular report. There's a lot of controversy over over the report itself and and what the report said or didn't say, uh, or or how it was put out. And so let's let's talk about well, what what the what what the report says. I mean, the report said that there was widespread systemic there were no widespread systemic impacts on water uh, on drinking water because of fracking. So and then it was immediately kind of attacked by people like Michael Halperin, the Union of Concerned Scientists, saying that uh, um, that the EPA made last last minute changes. So let's let's both of you talk a little bit about the reality of what this report says, how it's being used in this sure. argument, and what it what it means. Mitch, sure. you go first. So I think what the marketplace story from yesterday demonstrates is what we've been arguing uh, for some time at Food and Water Watch, which is that the top-line finding of no widespread systemic impact was a political decision that was made at the last minute. And what that marketplace report really demonstrates is that the early drafts of the press release that, is, that were going to go with this draft report um, actually mentioned that there had been impacts on drinking water and that sometime uh, in the late evening of, I believe it was June 3rd of that year, it got changed so that the next day the top line finding was instead no widespread s- systemic. And the report in Marketplace actually points out that there was a flurry of email activity the night before the report was released at the EPA when this change was being made. But it's important to note that the report does not define either the words widespread or systemic. And the EPA's own science ad- Science Advisory Board has criticized the EPA for that lack of a definition for their top-line finding. They have asked them to either quantify what those mean or remove the phrasing. That's their own scientific advisor's recommendation. But what's actually in the report is a demonstration of the dangers of fracking. Between 2006 and 2012, in 11 different states, there were a total of 457 spills associated with fracking. Of those, just under 71 percent, that's 324, reached either soil, surface water, or groundwater. Groundwater is the water that's actually in the ground. It's, so that's the difference there. So 71 percent of the spills that were documented in 11 different states between 2006 and 2012 led to contamination of soil, surface, or groundwater. And the causes they list are are many. And they call these documented impacts, documented impacts. Well construction um, failure, chemical spills, well blowouts, or directly drilling into subsurface structures, geological structures that contain water. There are a variety of different ways that the contamination, that the effects uh, to water happen under fracking. And this EPA report demonstrates that conclusively. The controversy around it is how did it end up with a top-line finding that is not actually supported by the evidence in the report and that appears to have been a political decision that was made at the last minute under pressure from someone we know not whom. And Drew Cobbs, how do you respond to that in in that critique? I think we need to put this in context. The other part of the statement in the EPA report was, and this is factual, the, that the number of identified cases was small compared to the number of hydraulically fractured wells. So I know there's concern about what the language was, but if you look at the, the facts and the quantification, there are 25,000 to 30,000 new hydraulically fractured wells done annually. So look at the statistics and the numbers. Any impacts where there were, which were very limited, were very localized, too. And the one thing I will say, EPA's definition of drinking water was very broad, much broader than basically you know, state definitions or the federal definitions that were used. And it said other evidence more recently, you know, like the California Council on Science and Technology study in 2015, came to the same conclusion as EPA. So you can argue over the words, but let's look at the facts, let's look at the science and the statistics. Were there some impacts? Very, very few and very limited and very localized. You know, I think it's interesting. The uh, oil and gas industry for years, for years, used to say there had been no drinking water impacts. That was their talking point. Now they're being forced. I mean, I sat down in, in Annapolis testifying 
for fracking ban legislation years ago and was told there has never been drinking water contamination. That's been their talking point. Now they're having to shift. They're being forced to shift. Well, you know, there has been some contamination, but it's been very minor contamination. It it, it wasn't over fracking itself, the process of fracking. That's the distinction. Have there been spills and other things related? You try to make, you know, and certain folks, opponents of it, try to make hydraulic fracturing, including everything, the drilling, the site prep, the whole works. You try to broaden the definition um, on that. And what we always said was about fracturing the process itself, which is a three to five day period of part of the activity in developing these these wells on that. So I, I think that's the distinction. So let's be clear on that. The other point I also want to make is there's some discussion you say about well failures. This is a term, a technical term where there are issues or something they find in the well that they have to address. It doesn't mean there was any contamination. doesn't mean there was any product or methane or thing that got off site. It's the same as on an aircraft. If they say there's a, 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 you know, a failure on that, the wing has a crack or something, that doesn't mean the plane crashed, that they caught it and addressed it and fixed it. But, you know, Drew, the report, the EPA report that you that you were, you know, lauding is the one that says that there's documented impact to drinking water from failures of well construction. That's not me. That's the EPA in the report that you were out there saying, you, you know, proves that fracking is safe enough to bring to Maryland. So, it, 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 well, I say that there, there's no risk. No, of course, there's no risk in anything on that. But it said, it said, if you look at the facts of the report, it's statistically extremely small and unlikely that there will be impacts. And the other thing is with the regulations that Maryland's proposed, which would probably be the strictest in the country, would also uh, make it very unlikely that, that any possibility of this would happen. So, so, so what are the politics of this at the moment? I mean, we have this five-year moratorium. Um, the ban's up in October. Clearly, there's going to be a huge debate in the state legislature around yes. this issue. We're not sure, I think, from what I think I've read, where the governor stands on any of this. He's not made it clear yet on what he – Not publicly. Anyway. Right, not publicly no. what he thinks. Um, there are clear differences inside. Uh, Senator Conway saying that uh, that even if he gets out of our committee, she doesn't think it would pass the Senate floor. Uh, Barve, who runs the uh, committee on the House side, says he'll let it into his committee. He won't commit to what will come out of it but that something will hit the floor to be debated. So wh- where do we think, Mitch, this is going to – both politically – both of you, I mean, where, mm-hmm. politically where this stands? Well, look, I think that it's not a secret that the, the major fight over fracking is going to take place in the state Senate. Um, you know, in the, in the Sears article you're referencing, Chairman Barve has said, well, I don't know what's going to happen. When he, was, right. when he was running for Congress and at other times he has said we're going to ban fracking in Maryland and he's indicated that it will not only get through his committee but get off the floor of the House. And so I think we all anticipate the fight over fracking to be uh, in the state Senate and obviously that means it's going to go through um, – the, the committee chaired by Senator John Carter Conway, who is the senator here where we're at sitting at Morgan State. Um, you know, she in the past has not, uh, despite what she says in this year's article, has not allowed fracking ban legislation out of her committee. She did, however, um, pass through the version of the moratorium, which is currently law. I do believe, having spoken with members of her committee, that there is uh, a majority of the members on her committee who would vote for a ban. And I happen to believe, based on conversations I've been having with members of the state Senate, that if we can get the bill out of committee, which means if Joan Cutter Conway would allow a vote. And look, Senator Conway has been an environmental champion for years. She has cheered that committee. She has passed legislation to protect the people of Maryland. Um, I believe that when push comes to shove, she will allow a vote in her committee. We will have the votes. It will get to the floor, and we will have the votes to pass it off the floor of the Senate. So, your closing thoughts on this, Drew? What do you think it's going to be politically in this in, the, in the, this year? Uh, I never make predictions. I've been doing this <laughs> a lot longer than this. <laughs> so, I don't know. I think that there will be a, a rigorous debate o- over this issue. The other thing I think, you know, Maryland is and Marylanders have have you know uh, benefited significantly from this process and this technology of hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling on that. I mean, natural gas prices and energy prices are down significantly. I've heard no one complain that they're paying a dollar less a gallon uh, on that. 
so. And then natural gas, as far as air quality, has been a huge benefit that have occurred because of the switch from coal to natural gas for, for air quality purposes and reduction of, of, you know, all sorts of different pollutants and stuff. So we've, you know, seen a lot of the benefits from this. Uh, approximately 24 other states already do this as legal activity. None of the states have done it, have banned it um, on that. So, you know, I just think it's a, it's a, you know, perfectly legitimate activity. It needs to be and appropriately regulated. Uh, and I think Maryland's on its way to doing that, having learned the lessons from a number of other states. Uh, that have already started this. Well, we'll be, be talking more about this on our March to the Annapolis Summit. We'll be talking about this at the Annapolis Summit on January the 13th with the governor, the speaker, and the president. Uh, and we'll be covering this with some intensity. And I want to thank our two guests first, uh, Drew Cobbs, Executive Director of the Maryland Petroleum Council, whose voice you just heard, and Ms. Jones, Senior Policy Advocate at Food and Water Watch for bringing us the first in our series of seven debates discussions on issues facing uh, this state legislative session. Good to have you both with us. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mitch. Thank you, Drew. Uh, and we'll put this will be on the website and also be up on the website of the Daily Record as well, our partner here for the Annapolis Summit. So I want you all to join me Wednesday, January the 11th for the 14th annual Annapolis Summit at the Governor Calvert House in Annapolis. It's your chance to hear and have your questions heard when we talk with Governor Larry Hogan, Senate President Mike Miller, and House Speaker Michael Bush. Event details and information about sponsorships at thedailyrecord.com slash Annapolis dash summit. For tickets, call Haley Polling at 443-524-8161 or email hpolling, P-O-L-L-I-N-G, at thedailyrecord.com. The Annapolis Summit is sponsored by The Daily Record, Stevenson University, the Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, Alexander and Cleaver, VPC, and WEAA. Do join us, and every week we'll be having our lead-up to the Annapolis Summit with our partner, The Daily Record. They'll be printing a story. We'll be doing the on-air conversation. So thank you all for that. Stay with us. We have to take a short break. Coming back as we conclude our conversation about our Salisbury Town meeting. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Sound Bites right here on The Mark Steiner Show. On your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. A few weeks ago, we brought you a panel I moderated at the First Baptist Church Family Life and Cultural Center in Salisbury, Maryland. It was called Industrial CAFOs, Economics, and Public Health in Delmarva, and focused on the question, how safe is your water? It was sponsored by the Wicomico County NAACP and the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project. The impetus of the town hall was a proposed poultry operation in Wicomico County that included up to 13 chicken houses, each holding 30,000 chickens, which had ended up being millions of chickens a year. This rural operation was set on top of a paleo channel, which is the public drinking water for all of Salisbury's residents. When this was first proposed, citizens were left out of the county council discussions, and many were concerned about the health risks posed by these operations. What happened next was unique in the history of Delmarva, of the Eastern Shore. Black, Latino, and white communities came together to convene this town hall meeting so their voices could be heard, so they could build a political movement. Go to steinershow.org to hear the entire panel. Today, though, we are listening to the keynote address from that panel, which was delivered by Dr. John Ickard, who is Professor Emeritus of Agricultural Economics at the University of Missouri. This man was raised on a dairy farm in Missouri. He worked in the industry as a livestock marketing specialist before he started working for sustainable agriculture. A light bulb went off in his head, which we'll hear about during this conversation. He's one of the leading thinkers in agricultural economics in this country, about the complexities of it, how it works, how it can be different. He's an original thinker, and we're happy to have him with us and to share his ideas. And here is Dr. John Ickard. I appreciate this opportunity to be here with you tonight, and I'm honored to be a part and share the program with this panel over here. I know all these folks a little bit and have a great deal of respect for all of them. I agree also that probably what you're experiencing here tonight is, could be called environmental racism. But it's not limited to environmental racism in terms of environmental injustice because last week I was down in the state of Arkansas and where they failed to do some environmental impact assessments on 
some 1,000 new poultry houses, at least the beginning of those, and in the approval of the SSA and the loans, they said something to the effect, well, these are just poor, ignorant people in the backwoods, and they won't know the difference. I paraphrase what they said, but it's in the documents. And so we see this everywhere. I don't like the kind of talks that we're making here tonight, but I think they're very necessary. You know, I I don't know what happened in America yesterday, but you know what it was, whatever it was, it didn't change the founding principles of this country, and it did not change the constitution of this country. And when the new president takes the oath of office, he'll put the hand on the Bible and he will swear to uphold the Constitution, and it's up to us to make sure that our president and our elected officials do this. And it's up to us to know what that means. In our Declaration of Independence, it said before the Constitution, it says we we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, it should have said all people, are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of of happiness. And the next line, which a lot of people don't remember, it says, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. That's the fundamental purpose of our government, is to ensure our rights. And the purpose is also spelled out in the preamble to the Constitution. It says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, to establish justice to ensure domestic tranquility, to provide for the common defense, to promote the general welfare, do ordain, and to secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States. These are the foundation principles. These are, these are the ideals, and these are the ideals which you're fighting for here and which we're fighting for in this country right now. And that battle didn't end yesterday, and that battle won't end tomorrow, and it won't end for a good time to come. But it's a battle that we must continue to fight. And I would say tonight we're involved in one of the skirmishes in that great battle. And tonight I call it the battle over factory farms. And I say it is time for all of us to take a stand in that battle. This is a battle for the hearts and minds of the American people, and this particular battle will determine the future of farming and food production in this country. And on many fronts, it may appear that we're losing, but I contend that we are winning because we're gaining the broader public attention to what we're doing here. There is a serious erosion of public trust and confidence in the American food system today, and it's spreading day by day. There's a recent article in the Chicago Tribune, I mean articles, a series on CAFOs out in the Midwest. You check the New York Times and look at the editorials that are done on confinement animal feeding operations, the Huffington Post, and any of the, the major publications now. So it's spreading into the general public. It's not just in communities like yours that are threatened by CAFOs. You know, we, we have over 50 years now of research and actual experience of people that are living, have been living with factory farms or CAFOs. And it goes all the way back to the poultry industry that came in the 40s and 50s, but mainly in the 60s, but then in the beef cattle and the big feedlots and the hogs and and now the dairy operations. And consistently, what the research has shown, that they pollute the air and the water and contaminate the food. It's simply not a system that that does what it's intended to do, does what it's supposed to do, is to produce good food for people. And you've heard the reports here, and I'm not going to dwell on it because it's, it's well documented. You know, it isn't just about the ordinary odors on the farm. The odors are filled with hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, and, and dust particles that carry all sorts of contaminants. And we heard about the, you know, the independent family farmers that you know, environmental stewardship's better with these, uh, con- these big confinement operations. That's simply not true. They contaminate thousands of miles of streams, and the increase in, in the contamination increases proportionally as we increase 
the big confinement operations. They say that, you know, in the state of Iowa, which is where I actually live right now, they say, well, this is at least better than the independent hog farms, but we've had almost a five-fold increase in the polluted waters as reported by our, our Department of Natural Resources since the late 1990s. You know, these big operations didn't just evolve on their own. They're, they're supported by government. They're supported by government policies. And you know what, what the intent was or what, we, what they proposed was that it's supported by government because these, these operations, industrial agriculture, is going to provide food security for the people. It's going to make good food affordable for everyone. You see, I spent the first half of my academic career supporting this organization or supporting this kind of agriculture, and I did it because I really believed that. We were, going to, we were going to make agriculture more efficient, we were going to reduce the cost of food production, and we were going to make good food affordable to everyone. It was a noble cause, but it was an absolute failure. It simply did not work. We have more people in this country that are food insecure today or hungry, meaning they don't have, know that they're going to have enough food or be able to get through the month to get enough food. We have more people today than we've been back in the 1960s. The, the latest reports indicate that about 15% of the people in this country are classified as food insecure, and more than 20% of our children live in food insecure homes. And when CBS did the documentary back in 1967 of hunger in America, it was estimated about 5% of the people in this country were hungry. You don't eliminate hunger by trying to make food cheap. And in addition to that, we did make food cheaper for some period of time. We cut the amount of percentage of income spent on food at about half between 1970 and 1990. But you know what? Over the past 25 or the past 20 years, the price of food has actually gone up faster than the overall inflation, rate of inflation. Whatever savings we've had at the farm level has been more than offset by the increased take of the food retailers, and so food prices have actually been going up. They may go down a while now in the next couple of years because of lower commodity prices, but it's failed. And in addition to that, the people that can afford to buy enough food, particularly the low-income people, the food that they're buying is killing them. It's making them sick. We've got an epidemic of obesity in this country and a whole host of, of, of related diseases such as diabetes and high blood pressure and, and uh, you know, uh, heart disease and a whole variety of cancers that are associated to the American diet. And, you know, it's not just about increased amounts of junk food and soda and all those things play a role into it, but there's increasing evidence that it's a lack of nutrient density that goes all the way back to the farm level, and we've depleted the productivity and the health of the soils and the crops and the plants, and the animals aren't healthy and the people aren't healthy as a consequence of that. It was a grand experiment, and it was well-intended, but it simply didn't work. And we need to tell the truth about the industrial agricultural system. You know, animal welfare probably gets more of the attention than about anything else when we talk about factory farming operations. And I, I tried to figure out why that is. And you know why? I think it basically goes to the heart of the issue. What we're talking about here is fundamentally an ethical and moral issue. It's, it's a question, you know, is, is it ethically right that a chicken has to spend its life, a laying hen has to spend its life in, in a cage that's so small that each chicken has space less than the size of a sheet of paper to spend its life in? Is it ethically and morally right that a, that a sow, a breeding hog, is put into a crate that's so small it can't even turn around in the crate? Is it ethically, morally right that we raise animals in situations where they're constrained in their behavior to something that's so contrary to to what they were created to be, that they, they spend their whole life gnawing on, a, on the side of the crate or, or some other kind of behavior, or they, they eat each other up to the point where you have to cut the bills off of chickens and cut the tails off of hogs. Is, is it morally or ethically right? You know, I would argue those same issues, those same kind of questions apply to our relationship to the environment. Do we have a right to pollute the water? Do we have a right to pollute the streams? You know, we're, we're made of water. Water is sacred. Water is life. Do we have a right to do it? Do we have a right to take advantage of our neighbors or people to take advantage of their neighbors just so they can make more money? Do we have a right to destroy rural communities and rural communities and rural economies out here just because it, 
contributes to economic activity or profits for someone else. You, you know, I would argue that, that farmers and anyone else that's a producer, and we all have a, a moral and ethical responsibility to be concerned about the impacts of our actions on, on other people. The farmers have a moral responsibility to be concerned about how the workers are treated in these operations. They have an ethical responsibility to be concerned about what they're doing to the quality of their neighbor's life. And we have an ethical responsibility to be concerned about what we're doing to our rural communities out here. You know, we're, we're turning our rural areas in general all across this country into dumping grounds. You know, if the state's going to build a new prison, we have communities that are competing for it. What's that? That's people that nobody wants next to them. If you can't get a prison, then you can get an urban landfill where they can bring it out and dump your trash and build you a mountain out here. If you miss out on the landfill, then you can get a toxic waste incinerator because the competition's going down. And if you don't qualify for any of that, you can get a giant chicken farm. You know, all of that stuff may be perfectly legal, but that does not mean that it's moral. You know, the science is there. The information is there. It's not a matter of whether the, there's solid evidence to support the concerns that I'm talking about here. And in many cases, it's overwhelming. I'm almost quit talking about individual studies anymore because there's so many studies that have been done over such a long period of time. I focus on the on the meta-studies, where you have scientists that collect a whole bunch of other scientific studies from various sources, and then they draw particular conclusions about that. The Pew Charitable Trust in 2008 did one of those. They spent about two years, and they went around the country and took testimony in addition to reviewing and citing almost 200 different citations in that. And they concluded with respect to what they called industrial animal operations, or they said that the, the risk to public health and the environment and animal welfare was often unacceptable. And they went beyond that to say that the, the risks were too great and the scientific evidence was simply too strong to ignore and that change must be made and must begin now. That was 2008. Five years later, the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health went back and reviewed and said, did they do any of the things that had to be done? And basically, none of them had been done, and the situation continued to get worse. There was another Pew-funded study in 2009 that focused specifically on rural communities. And again, they went back over 50 years of research of the impact of industrial agriculture on rural communities, and they found consistent increases in income inequity and increasing poverty and declined businesses on Main Street and fewer stores, the negative impacts on rural communities out here. And then there was, the, uh, there was a study done for the North Dakota Attorney General's office in, in uh, 2008, and it was done the same way, except they went back and they, they reviewed the journals that were scientific journals that were peer-reviewed journals where we had socioeconomic research and 58 different studies they went in and confirmed that, that the impacts, the negative economic impacts, the only ne positive economics was on a particular community in terms of employment, but there are always negative impacts that offset the positive impacts, and they talked about particularly that when these go into communities, they tear the social fabric of rural communities apart. You know, there was a more recent study, some of these I've talked about are a few years old, but there was one come out the middle of this year, 2016, in July, I think it was, and it was an international panel of experts on sustainability, and it included three or four experts that I knew of from the United States, but also people from around the world. And they went in and documented over 350 different citations that they used. And I'll just read through their conclusions very quickly. They say, today's systems of food and farming systems admittedly produce large volumes of food for global markets, but they're generating negative outcomes on multiple fronts, including degradation of the land, the water, ecosystems, greenhouse gas emissions, loss of biodiversity, increased hunger, micronutrient deficiency, increased obesity, diet-related diseases, and economic stress on farmers all around the world. And they said we need a fundamentally different system, like Michelle was talking about. And they called it well, agroecology, but they talked about this diverse system. And I can talk a little bit more on that in a minute. But they say what is required is a different model of agriculture, diversifying farms and landscape, farming landscapes, 
replacing chemical inputs, optimizing biodiversity as a part of holistic strategy, building long-term soil fertility, increasing health of agroecosystems, and securing farm livelihoods for people that live on the land. It says, these systems can compete with industrial agriculture in terms of total output, and they're, they're, they can be even perform more strongly under conditions of environmental stress, and the production increases actually are possible in places in the world where food is desperately needed. Diversified agroecosystems can also provide diverse diets and improved health. All of the other things that we're talking about that are needed where the industrial system failed. We talk about industrial systems, they say we can, can feed the world. But you know what? This study and others shows that the rest of the world doesn't want or doesn't need our industrial agriculture to, to feed them. We're often told we have to sacrifice for the rest of them. What a lot of people don't know, at least 70% of the people in the world today are not fed by industrial agriculture. They're fed by small, what we would call subsistence farms. And the research that's done around the world, at least four recent UN reports, indicate that we can increase yields on those farms twofold or threefold with the systems that are talked about in this report without industrial agricultural systems. The rest of the world figured out that the Green Revolution, so-called revolution of industrial agriculture, basically failed. It goes in, increases production for a little while, but pretty soon you see there what you saw in this country. You see those smaller farms consolidated into large farms, and they end up exporting the increased production to other areas of the world where people can afford to pay more money, and the people at home are left hungry as they were before. In another recent study, or a recent group of people, more than 500 scientists from around the world came together, and they concluded that globally now, obesity has become a bigger problem, as big a problem as hunger, because everywhere that we've exported this industrial system around the world, we see the same problems that we're seeing here. Folks, that's, that's the facts. That's where the science is today. You know, the challenge in the U.S. is not increased productivity. Our challenge in the U.S. is sustainability. You know, sustainability really is about meeting the needs of all in the present without diminishing opportunities for the future. And we're not meeting the needs of all in this country today. We still have people that are hungry, and we still have people that are not well-fed, and we most certainly are not leaving equal or better opportunities for those of the future as we're destroying the productivity of our land and our water and the things that that depend upon. We've got folks out here that are creating this new system. They may call themselves organic or regenerative or ecological or, or innovative or practical farmers or a whole range of things, but they're all farming for the same basic thing. They're trying to produce good food for people, trying to meet the needs of the present without diminishing opportunities for the future. In addition to that, we're already producing more in this country than that we need to feed everybody in the country. We're just not doing it. We've been burning up 40% of our corn crop for fuel, for ethanol, while they're starving people around the world. We've been exporting about 30% of our total production to other countries around the world, and we're not exporting to the hunger. We're not exporting to the countries in the world where people are hungry. We're exporting to those countries in the world that have increasingly affluent people that can pay profitable prices for our free grains or for our meat. And the hungry are still going hunger as a result of that. We produce more than enough. We waste about 40% of whatever we're producing in this country. We can afford most of us to pay more for food and throw it away than the poor people can pay to eat. Folks, it's time to wake up and create a food system that actually produces good food for people. The facts are in. All that's left is whether or not we're going to continue to allow the right of a few people to make money to take precedent over the basic human rights of the rest of us. You know, I think the agricultural industry knows out here today, they know the evidence, they know the things that I'm talking about. They know that their propaganda campaign is nothing but a holding action. And why do I feel that they're doing that? Because they're trying to build a legislative, legislative firewall. They're trying to put into legislation things that will prevent us from regulating those industries. You can go back to the, the 1960s or 
uh, 90s, I guess it was, the veggie libel laws, you know, the Oprah Winfrey case, where they, they tried to make it easier to sue anybody like, like me or any of us up here that would say anything bad about the food system. You know, we could get drug into court for doing that. It didn't hold up. They didn't win the case, but it put a chilling effect on people in universities thinking, well, if you report your research, you may get sued out here. They had the ag-gag laws, which made it against the law to take pictures of animals in in livestock confinement operations unless you had permission to do so. And a couple of those state laws have been overturned, but the intimidation is still there. And where they are now, they're trying to develop right-to-farm laws. You know, we've always had right-to-farm laws. About every state has them. But right now, there's an initiative that they're trying to to strengthen those right-to-farm laws from their perspective anyway, of, of saying that we define the right to farm as whatever the industry considers to be accepted farming practices, and that includes industrial factory farming operations. And they're going beyond just simply changing the laws to redefine farming as to what they want it to be, and they're trying to put these into constitutional amendments in various countries, I mean various states, and they've already done it in Missouri, and they've done it in South Dakota. I understand Oklahoma's law was voted down this time, but it's a nationwide thing, and what they're trying to do is make it a constitutional right to continue to operate these factory farms, these big chicken operations and hog operations and 10,000, 100,000 cow dairies that they're building around the country would be a state constitutional right all across the country, and that's what they're, they're trying to do. And what they're doing is they're saying that the the right to run a factory farm should take priority over our basic human rights to clean air, clean water, and safe food. This, This is a question of rights. It's a question of basic rights. I would argue that it is a question of constitutional rights. So you say, well, where in the Constitution does it say that we have a right to clean air, clean water, safe food? Well, I say the the Constitution says that it doesn't have to say that in the Constitution because if you read the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution, it, it says basically the enumeration in this Constitution of certain rights should not be interpreted to disparage or diminish others who are retained by the people. He says, we didn't name them all. There are other rights in here that are retained by the people. And some of those rights were later added to the Constitution, such as the abolition of slavery. It wasn't there originally, but we added, and others gave women the right to vote. It wasn't there, but we added it. And others have been interpreted under laws of freedom of speech and and privacy and things of that. And others, such as self-determination and self-defense, are so self-evident that we've never really thought that it was necessary to put them in the Constitution. You know, back to where I started. The Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I say that is a good place to look for rights, that are not specifically named in the Constitution. And what could be possibly more important to the right to life than clean air, clean water, and safe, healthful food? I argue we have a constitutional right to those things. You know, the only defense that the the people come back, the industrial agriculture people come back and say, well, In spite of all the compelling evidence I've talked about, there's not a scientific consensus because they have scientists planted around in the agricultural colleges that I worked in four of and other places and a a lot of corporate scientists that will stand up and say, well, all this stuff that he's talking about is a big bunch of bunk, even though there's thousands of reports out there from other scientists that say something different to that. They say that there's not a, a scientific consensus. But you know one thing that's different between now and 1970s when I first went to North Carolina, the big tobacco state, the early days of the tobacco controversy, they were saying, well, there's no scientific consensus then. But you know the difference back then, the scientists basically had a monopoly on all the scientific reports and everything because you couldn't really find them unless you knew where to search them in the library. But you know where we are today, basically everything I've given you is on the internet. 
And there's a paper here that I've given to them that you can go and the links are there. Look, you are educated, you can read, you can understand things. There's other people you can talk to that can help you interpret it. We're no longer dependent upon the so-called experts. We have a right of self-determination. I would argue that's in the Constitution. And we have a right of self-defense. And you know, the other thing is that, that at least in the case of smokers, you know, you could move away from them somewhere. You know, you could meant you had to give up eating in some restaurants and maybe couldn't fly in airplanes back in the early days of that. But at least you kind of had an ability to get away. But you can't do that anymore. They're moving into your community. You know, we need to continue to fight for the regulations that are there. And we really need to continue to try to enforce them. And we need to continue to try to strengthen them. But we cannot afford to spend all of our time and all of our energy simply defending ourselves. It's time that we go on the offensive. It's time that they started having to defend themselves. It's time to take a stand and defend our rights before those rights are taken away from us. You know, we need such things as a, a nationwide moratorium, and I think we're building up to that. We're going state by state that says, we've got to stop and think about this so the rest of the people can inform themselves of what's going on and stand up and claim their rights. I suppose such things as putting them on the defensive of saying, you know, we, we need to ha have a super fund tax that we put on CAFOs that are operating and then use that tax to start closing down the ones that are fringing and on people's quality of life and threatening the public health out here. We need to take a play out of Monsanto's playbook, which they did on GMO labeling. We need a, a, a national right to farm law that says nationally a CAFO is not a farm that preempts all of these state laws out here and says if you're operating a CAFO, that's not a farm. You're not protected. That's a factory. You have to go by the same rules as anyone else does. We need a farm bill that basically quits subsidizing industrial agriculture and starts subsidizing and promoting alternative agriculture, ecological, uh, uh, organic, regenerative agriculture, all of these things that these young farmers all across the country are doing today. We have the power to do these things. You know, the power is also in the Constitution. If you read the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution, the one that's often quoted that says that powers that are not specifically getting to the federal government are, and not prohibited to the state government are retained by the state and the people, it says. They forget to say, and the people. The Ninth Amendment gives us the right. The Tenth Amendment gives us the power. The power is retained by the people. The fundamental purpose of government is to defend our rights. What we have today is a failure of governance. It's time for us to take a stand. It's time for us to stand up and, and claim our power, the power of the people. And I will stand by the power to fight against CAFOs and ultimately we will prevail. Thank you. That was Dr. John Ickard, Professor Emeritus of Agricultural Economics at the University of Missouri. He was the keynote speaker at the panel I moderated at the First Baptist Church Family Life and Cultural Center in Salisbury, Maryland. The meeting was called Industrial CAFOs, Economics, and Public Health in Delmarva. It focused on the question of how safe is your water. It was sponsored by the Wacomico NAACP and Socially Responsible Agricultural Project. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producer is Mark Henry. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. And to podcast The Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. Your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.